You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Hello again, everybody. This is Kiefer with Body IO FM and uh, the, my co-host Rocky Patel. Hey, Kiefer. And today we are lucky enough to get Ben Greenfield on for our podcast, and uh, we've got some great questions for him. Not a lot of ketogenic athletes out there that are, you know, so vocal and also so accomplished. So we've got a lot of great questions. Uh, good morning, Ben. Good morning. I. I love being described as vocal. Does that oh. mean I talk too much? <laughs> well, you know, you're out there on the web, you know. Okay, you're, yeah. yeah, I don't even know what the right phrase is, but hopefully everybody understands what I mean. <laughs> I'll take vocal. <laughs> All right. Uh, why don't you just give us a little rundown of your, your background and where you are now? Yeah, um, my background is I'm a sports nutritionist and um, have a master's degree in biomechanics and exercise physiology from University of Idaho. And I grew up um, basically playing, you know, traditional all four American sports and kind of got into tennis during high school, played collegiate tennis and got into bodybuilding after that. I did bodybuilding for a couple of years and then... um, kind of shrunk myself down from 210 pounds to uh, 175 pounds and uh, over the course of, of 10 years uh, raced a, a crap load of Ironman triathlons and endurance events and um, along the way uh, have done a lot of coaching and a lot of consulting and a lot of writing for folks who want to um, kind of be able to uh, tap into performance but also not destroy their bodies at the same time and that's really kind of my wheelhouse now is is helping folks manage their biomarkers be healthy on the outside and also healthy on the inside and kind of be able to do some of these things that are not all that natural or necessarily healthy but do them as as much as they can without doing a great deal of damage to their bodies their minds their longevity etc you know still still look sexy and not not look like a, a wrinkled elephant that spent too much time in the sun from connective tissue degradation and right. you know just basically kind of help folks um pull this thing off and uh where i am right now is i just just put the finishing touches on my book uh beyond training over at beyondtrainingbook.com and it just kind of oh, cool. takes everything i've learned in the trenches over those past 10 years and, and kind of put them into about 540 pages of a uh, very very heavy paperweight so nice so that's what i've been up to Nice. So, you know, when did, you know, I can't imagine that you started life as a ketogenic athlete in high school or any of those things. So when did you, or, or I could be wrong, but if I'm not wrong, when did you make that transition? When, what was it that sparked uh, your experimentation or your, your delving into the ketogenic diet for performance? You mean aside from breastfeeding when I was born? <laughs> right. Aside from that. <laughs> So um, one, once I, I uh, got out of being fat adapted, which began, you know, at an early age when I was done with breast milk and started mm-hmm. eating graham crackers and, and gummy chews and cereal like every 
American kid. Right. Um, I I pretty much went through the traditional uh, athlete diet um, through. Uh, college, you know, playing tennis, I was pretty much, you know, uh, McDonald's supersized me meal an hour before practice and, nice. you know, some ice cream to follow up and, you nice. know, pretty much just, uh, just ate what I wanted to eat. And then once I got into bodybuilding, um, definitely restricted carbohydrates, but did so via a very high protein diet. So kind of the traditional, you know, crapping out a straw at the end of the day from your five whey protein shakes style uh, bodybuilding routine. Right. And still and then, not ketogenic um, pretty much. Well, not keto. I mean, yeah. Oh, heck no. I mean like the, uh, the gluconeogenesis as well as the, uh, the, uh, insulin load from, from that right. high, high amount of protein. There's no way I was in ketosis. Um, and then going into endurance sports, I pretty much went full on with the traditional recommendations of, uh, 50 to 60% carb, um, with any competition weeks, uh, lowering carbohydrates uh, early in the week to about, you know, 30, 40 percent carbohydrates and then jacking up carbs over the course of the week to about 80 to 90 percent carbohydrate uh, pre-race day. So traditional uh, glycogen depletion, glycogen loading protocol. Right. Um, and, you know, most of my diet was pretty much high carbohydrate, whole grains, um, usually like three, four loaves of bread a week. Um, lots of pizza, lots of pasta, lots of fruit, um, pretty much like, you know, 24 seven, uh, carbon take aside from those couple of days. Like usually if I was going to race a, let's say a half Ironman on a Sunday, mm -hmm. you know, the Saturday and the Sunday before I do a carbohydrate depleting workout, um, stay low carb for Saturday and Sunday, and then gradually raise carbohydrates over the course of the week till I was pretty much like, you know, Gatorade out the eyeballs by the time race day rolled around. Um, so, you know, my only experience with low carbohydrate, um, before I started to, to look into a more natural ancestral way of eating was those couple of days of glycogen depletion that I'd throw down, you know, the week before a big event. Mm -hmm. Um, and even, even in those situations, I was very fat phobic. So, you know, those carbohydrates are really being replaced primarily with, you know, tuna and whey protein and kind of like the traditional stuff I had, I had learned while bodybuilding. Right. Um, so it was, it was really when I started to delve into looking at biomarkers, when I started to do blood testing for everything from inflammatory markers to hemoglobin A1C to fasted glucose that I began to realize that I was putting myself at risk of a lot of the deleterious effects of chronic high blood sugar. Um, so nerve inflammation, blood inflammation, connective tissue degradation, mm -hmm. you know, cholesterol oxidation, all, all of the stuff that can occur when you, uh, when, when you're eating, you know, a, a high amount of carbohydrate. And so I began to adjust my diet and my dietary philosophies to become more in line with kind of like, um, you know, like pretty much like, like Paul Jaminet's recommendations are the closest that I come to like his perfect health diet, yeah. which is like, you know, 50 to 60% fat based intake, uh, you know, based on the macronutrient ratios of a traditional, like, hunter-gatherer kind of like northern european type of diets um with with smatterings of carbohydrate thrown in enough protein to avoid protein toxicity um which is like 0 0.7 to 0 0.8 grams per pound mm -hmm. um and kind of rocked that out for a while and felt fantastic on that um but then uh last year kind of decided to 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 biohack uh, my performance with the use of a ketogenic diet to see if it would indeed influence things like uh, 
uh, oxygen utilization, efficiency and economy during exercise, mental focus during exercise, the ability to engage in increased fat oxidation during exercise, and a lot of these things that I suspected or read that a very high fat diet would be able to do. And so I trained for Ironman Canada over the uh, the uh, 12 weeks of 2013 in full ketosis, like not like cyclic ketosis or cyclic low carb or anything like that, just like mm-hmm. full ketosis. Kept that up uh, after qualifying for Ironman World Championships, stayed with that ketotic diet through to Ironman Hawaii. Um, and pretty much just, you know, uh, tested biomarkers the whole time, tested heart rate variability, um, tracked and tested my performance and just kind of saw what would happen when, you know, like a, like a, uh, endurance athlete or someone who's exercising a lot follows a, a ketogenic diet. Um, so that, that was pretty much what I experimented with. So it's been really only, a, you know, a year or so that I've been really doing a lot with like full on ketosis and, and kind of seeing how athletes respond to that in particular. So Ben, uh, what did you see? What were the changes or were there any differences, um, you know, being ketogenic versus being not ketogenic and looking at those biomarkers? Yeah, um, sure. There were definitely changes, um, including having a really, really hard time. Anytime I walked by an Italian restaurant (laughs) um, or or smelled my wife's wonderful sourdough bread that she makes every week. Um, So there there were some difficult times through there. Basically, what I noticed from like just like a qualitative performance standpoint was after about four to five hours of racing or training, um, it was it was a very um, palatable improvement in performance. I know my body very well after having raced for 10 years mm-hmm. and I would I would be able to get by with extremely low amounts of caloric intake. Um, particularly during long bike rides and just go and go and go. Like I could get out of bed in a fasted state, get on my bike and ride and just be out there and get stronger and stronger as the day went longer. So um, noticed a definite performance improvement, especially at um, like long, kind of like low intensity aerobic efforts. So um, found found that to be pretty useful. Um, the things that I noticed from a blood and biomarker standpoint was a pretty significant, and if you look at my graphs that I have online at bengreenfieldfitness.com, did a lot of testing with Wellness FX, and there was a pretty significant trend uh, upwards in thyroid stimulating hormone over the course of the summer, a uh, pretty significant trend uh, downwards of testosterone. Um, inflammation incidentally also trended downwards. So very significant drop in HSCRP. So I, I suspect it's because there was very little kind of like, uh, oxidation or advanced glycation end product or inflammation occurring from carbohydrate load. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, high levels of fatty acids in the bloodstream can inhibit thyroid receptor, uh, sensitivity, mm-hmm. um, or, or cell receptor sensitivity to thyroid hormone. Um, very low levels of carbohydrate or inadequate levels of carbohydrate can inhibit conversion of, of uh, inactive thyroid to active thyroid. Mm-hmm. So it was no surprise that my thyroid stimulating hormone started getting churned out, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and I experienced the qualitative aspects of that too. Um, you know, axillary, axillary and oral body temp um, dropped. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I would get colder and colder and, and less tolerant to cold 
over the course of the summer. Um, and, and, uh, testosterone dropped as well. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't all, uh, you know, rainbows and sunshine in terms of, of kind of what happened from a, from a qualitative standpoint or a quantitative standpoint. Um, I was able to, between Ironman Canada and Ironman Hawaii, turn around a lot of those issues. I started eating organ meats once a week, got my hands on a lot of sweetbreads, a lot of liver. Um, I started using a desiccated thyroid powder uh, from uh, New Zealand cows, like an A2 New Zealand cow um, called uh, Thyro Gold. And um, that helped significantly with both testosterone as well as thyroid. So by the time I got to Ironman Hawaii, my thyroid had gotten to about, my TSH had gotten to about 1.3 from over four. So, you know, for, for health reasons, I like to see TSH in athletes between 0.5 and two. So I was happy with that. Um, testosterone rose from, uh, uh, total of mid 300s to mid 500s so trended upwards mm -hmm. um you know libido and competitive drive started to return stuff like that um so that you know similar to what the the inuits have found from a high fat diet and the need for you know organ meats and organ consumption um for maintaining fertility that's pretty much what i found with the ketogenic diet and high levels of physical activity like you got to just like get some of those some of those hormonal precursors and and hormonal support from exogenous sources you know like like organ meats so um what else those were those were some of the biggies um, besides hrv yeah. did you do any other functional testing like uh, vo2 max testing intermittently or gas exchange data um to see you if... know what i I would have loved to have done that because I, you know, Peter Atia, um, who's done a lot of experimentation on himself in a ketogenic state, was able to get over to uh, Dominique Diagostino's laboratory. Yeah, and Dominique's the guy who is who has helped uh, or has, has been involved with the um, the production of like liquid ketone supplements, where yeah. rather than getting yourself into ketosis via a low carbohydrate diet per se you actually hack your way into ketosis right. by consumption of ketones. We so, actually interviewed you know, him uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So the audience okay. should be great, you know, okay. pretty familiar with him. Yeah. Yeah. So Atia's tests on VO2 efficiency and economy with uh, intake of, of ketones during exercise and being in, in a, at least one millimolar or higher of ketosis showed mm -hmm. improvements in, in VO2. I never got a chance to test that. Would have would have loved to, um, but never got in to do indirect calorimetry. Although I'm, I'm going over to Jeff Bullock's lab here in three days over at University of Connecticut, and we're going to do some testing over there. Um, the... Uh, the uh, HRV, no surprise here, as TSH trended upwards and testosterone dropped, HRV consistently went from uh, mid-90s to low-90s, so I had mm -hmm. really good nervous system stabilization to um, anywhere from upper 70s to mid-80s over that period of time. So um, my, my recovery parameters started to get influenced pretty significantly as well. Um, the the one thing I should mention is that I also trained with a relatively minimal training protocol. So I only train eight to twelve hours per week. Um, I I because of that utilized a lot of strategies to increase mitochondrial density and my mm -hmm. ability to churn out enough ATP through fatty acid oxidation by doing um, uh, heavy weight training by doing uh, isometric intervals. I used a lot of uh, electrical stimulation as well, combined with isometrics, 
So like hooking up an EMS uh, unit to my quads and my hamstrings and doing like long isometric squats against the wall to improve ability to buffer lactic acid and uh, the the Cori cycle or conversion of, of lactic acid back into glucose right. uh, via the liver. Um, so d- did some little hacks to allow myself to get enough mitochondrial density to burn fatty acids at a very efficient rate uh, while training with a minimalist protocol. Um, I also used uh, quite a bit of a uh, supplement called uh, oxaloacetate for that as well, which is usually marketed as like a, an anti-aging supplement to improve that process. But I found it to be a, a pretty good uh, little biohack to throw in there as well. Um, and then during my sessions, used a lot of, uh, of medium chain triglycerides, used a lot of uh, both branch chain and essential amino acids. Uh, and then also use minimal amounts of carbohydrate during the longer training sessions from long or, or high molecular weight starches. So I used UCAN Super Starch, mm-hmm. which basically gets, uh, it, it's very, very high in, in terms of its molecular weight. So you get a very slow bleed of the carbohydrate into the bloodstream. Um, took in only about 100 calories of that per hour during those long sessions, uh, along with about a tablespoon or so of MCT oil and around five to 10 grams of uh, amino acids. And that turned out to be a really good mix for keeping the body in ketosis during exercise um, while still allowing for for elevated performance and um, not a really rapid depletion of like, you know, uh, liver glycogen, muscle glycogen, stuff like that. So Ben, you know, one of the things we do in our practice is we do cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So not only do we get the VO2 max, which is basically your ability to judge your functional capacity to exercise. Uh, we also look at heart rate data, um, EKG while the patient's on the cycle ergometer, and we can look at the responses, not only from a functional standpoint, which, you know, I'm all for the I completely concur with the ability to do a ketogenic diet in a endurance uh, state or inter- endurance activity and still preserve functional capacity like, like Peter's shown uh, and obviously you have as well. One of the things we see though is that we'll have marathon runners come through and put them on the bike. Uh, they're doing large volumes of, of workload and we'll see that their stroke volume, so we can measure stroke volume as a ratio of heart rate and VO2 their stroke volume mm-hmm. tends to at high workloads tends to flatten out it's almost like they're getting a, a ischemic response and then they have this compensatory increase in heart rate that make up for the lack of stroke volume adaptation whether this is because it's a true ischemic response where the heart's not getting enough oxygen and stiffens up and can't relax or it could be possibly that's just their functional limit they can't go any higher i'm not sure mm-hmm. if either of those states are good um, even though you can show the well-preserved functional capacity in VO2 max. So uh, to kind of come back to what you had mentioned earlier about, you know, doing endurance uh, activities in a safe manner, is it really possible to do endurance activities in a safe manner or is it just a matter of just trying to limit the damage? I think it's a matter of trying to limit the damage and I don't think that a ketogenic diet is um, a natural uh, diet per se. Um, I, I think that when, when you look at, you know, like we started with like the macronutrient composition of breast milk or like a traditional, you know, hunter gatherer diet, for example, that, um, 
ketosis is a useful biohack, but that it's, I mean, there's like so many little things you have to do and, you know, everything from, you know, just like barely ever going near, you know, fruit or berries and even being really careful with like proteins and stuff like that. And, you know, the logistical issues with trying to eat 80 to 90% fat based intake. And I don't want to tell you how much money Amazon subscribe and save made off of me ordering coconut milk. Um, and how many bottles of MCT oil I went through. But yeah, ultimately, you know, it's one of those things where it it can certainly be used to improve endurance performance in what I found using myself as an N equals one experiment. Uh, But it's, it's logistically a little bit difficult to pull off and you got to do a lot of these little things along the way, you know, like, um, you know, for example, the, the uh the organ meat consumption and um perhaps even like a desiccated thyroid uh uh powder or capsule and then you know if you're going to try to avoid overtraining especially in in the absence of uh much carbohydrate intake you know lower volumes of training combined with some of these you know higher intensity kind of biohacks or isometrics or electrical muscle stimulation or some of these other things I was doing I mean like there's a lot of little things you got to do so I don't I don't really think it's that sustainable of a protocol for the average folk to just go out and, and pull off. Well, it's kind of interesting on that vein of stroke volume. You know, uh, most of the patients that come through Rocky's practice are on a carbohydrate-based carbohydrate, carbohydrate based diet for marathon runners and whatnot. Whereas we know when you become, you know, the, the current term is fat-adapted. Uh, as you really become fat-adapted, your muscles stop using ketones and your heart and diaphragm really take up the load of being able to utilize those ketones and we see mm-hmm. a much greater efficiency in uh, power per stroke when we're able to have ketones you know the heart using ketones so that could mitigate some of the things you're seeing rocky and could also make the ketogenic diet you know actually more ideal for endurance training from a heart health standpoint would would be my thinking you know we obviously we'd have to have to look at that and there's not a lot of candidates to get that information from but i would think that that potential increase in efficiency would help to make up for some of the things you're seeing during the testing of a high carbohydrate marathon runner it's also made me really rethink this concept of endurance activity for health as well i mean i have so many people coming in wanting to get healthy treat their diabetes Uh, lower their cholesterol improve their blood sugar indexes and usually the first thing they do is they start running i mean that's the normal response and i've really been surprised by some of the testing that we've done to look at that heart rate response and that stroke volume response that we see we see patients that have these large robust heart rate responses uh, with a decrease in stroke volume on testing at high workloads and i just whether again that's just their natural adaptation and that's the ceiling that they can get to or it's actually true ischemic response because they have cardiovascular disease i just don't think either one of those scenarios is a good thing but this is what we're telling people to do or at least that's what they're hearing from the so-called experts in society so to speak Mm. yeah it's have you just so this is going to sidetrack the whole ketogenic discussion a little bit uh, 
you know, I was always fascinated by the carbohydrate loading programs that you see for runners and in the traditional sense. And when they studied that, it actually didn't help to increase glycogen stores at all. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty much junk. But, you know, if you are in a very extremely ketogenic state, then you can carbohydrate load and get extreme amounts of glycogen storage compared to what's normal. And I remember, you know, I've worked with some marathon runners, um, and they, I have them train predominantly ketogenic, and their workload is much less. But then before game day, I have them load up for two days with carbohydrates, or actually a day and a half. And I also found in myself back when I started kind of the opposite. I did a little bit of, you know, weightlifting, and then I got heavy into endurance sports for a few years, specifically cycling, and then I went back to bodybuilding. But when I was cycling, uh, I found with kind of a moderate carbohydrate diet, I was only before on a heavy carbohydrate diet, uh, you know, if I would go out on a 100-mile ride, uh, my best time was like seven hours or something like that, and I was beat for a few, couple days after that. And when I started, I started ratcheting back carbohydrates in college when I first started learning about this stuff, and I started doing 40-mile training rides. And I, I changed the way I did those rides a little bit. I had a small sprint segment in there, and then I would try to keep um, a pretty moderate intensity after each of those sprints. And what I found was after that, I went back on a pure ketogenic diet for about two weeks and then this kind of impromptu ride came up where I had loaded on maybe not the best carbohydrate source but like a couple little tins of pastries and threw myself hyperglycemic but you know a couple days later I did a hundred mile ride after that and with only water I, I did that hundred mile ride in under five hours and at the end of the ride I felt great. I had no issues with feeling wiped out or depleted after that. And that's kind of the protocol based on that, um, how I use with marathon runners or endurance athletes when I am willing to work with them for that and they're willing to stick to stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm wondering if you have had any interest in attempting something like that where you, you you, you create this fantastic environment to utilize intramuscular glycogen stores when you've been ketogenic for a long time and when you get to game day without any of those carbohydrates. Um, you know, you open up and increase access to intramuscular glycogen stores uh, while still having a great mobilization of fatty acids to use for, for energy and oxidative processes. And then you've got the ketone load that's going to increase efficiency of the cardiac muscle and the diaphragm. So I'm, I'm just curious if you've ever thought as maybe a next next stage in self-experimentation of doing something like that yeah i I think that that it's certainly appealing probably the thing i'd add into that would be the use of like these beta hydroxybutyrate salts to actually Mm -hmm. increase ketone load even more so that you're you know you're you're shoving your ketones well above you know what I don't. I actually don't know how high you can get them. I don't know if Dominique brought this up on on your show. You know, I suspect it's it's probably you know two, three, maybe higher in terms of your your millimole. Yeah, he that said you could get we, your, your yeah, ketones. He said um, you can hit kind of the bottom level of starvational ketosis, which is about three millimole. So, okay, okay, got it. Um, and and I guess for folks who are listening who are concerned about that, I mean, you don't see like 
diabetic ketoacidosis or right. any potentially damaging state so you're getting you know like above 10 so yeah. um yeah it'd, it'd be interesting to try that and also to, to add in the ketones i i should throw out there that i uh this in, this entire year i'm I'm pretty much done with ketosis um, and <laughs> not experimenting with it right now. I'm I'm pretty much I've returned to like a 50 to 60 percent fat based intake, um, and I'm really doing a lot more like short, intense, like Spartan racing, sprint triathlon stuff like that. So um, biohacking for the sake of long endurance efforts isn't something I really need to be doing right now. Um, but I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, and I would, I would certainly say for folks listening in, you know, if there are some people who try it, um, that'd be interesting to see. The other thing I should add in is that even though, you know, this whole carbohydrate loading thing, you know, the carbohydrate depletion followed by several days of carbohydrate loading hasn't been actually shown to be all that efficacious. There was, um, and, and I think it was, uh, Alex Hutchinson who talked about this on his, uh, his sweat science, uh, blog that he does for runner's world. It's called sweat science or, or sports science, one of the two. Mm-hmm. But he talked about uh, the, the recent deal where they were following the London marathoners and looking at the folks who actually ate anywhere from 7 to 10 grams per kilogram of carbohydrate the day before actually mm-hmm. had a, a pretty significant improvement in performance. And that's a, that's a heck of a lot of carbohydrate for people who actually do the math, you know, 10 right. grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight. Um, but they, they did report uh, a pretty significant improvement in performance with a protocol like that. But again, you know, and I'm sure you guys have mentioned this on the show, you know, most of these type of studies aren't done on fat adapted athletes right. or people who have been like, you know, eating a high fat diet for a long period of time and may not need that carbohydrate loading to increase their, their muscle glycogen stores or to allow them to be able to tap into glycogen more efficiently during exercise. Right. So, you know, what, uh, you, you've got me curious now that you're, uh, done with ketosis and it sounds like you're kind of back somewhat near the, uh, the perfect health diet. Is that kind of the ratios you're, you're at yep. carbohydrate yeah. wise and yeah. why this shift? Yeah. You just looking for the next thing to, to experiment with? Um, well, part of the reason is the logistics of the ketogenic diet. Like I'm a, I'm a total, you know, red wine, dark chocolate, <laughs> have waffles with the kids some mornings. Um, you know, like, and, and, and my wife and I, we, we travel a lot. You know, I, I just got back from Israel where I had a lot of, you know, a lot of things I wouldn't have been able to do on ketosis. Like, right. you know, I, I engaged in hummus and falafel and, you know, pita and, you know, all, all the stuff that, that you tend to miss out on from a culinary standpoint, I definitely missed out on in, in doing, doing the ketotic diet. Um, and then, uh, you know, just, just kind of going out of your way to eat liver every week and to make sure you ask the, <laughs> the, the butcher for the sweetbreads. And it's just like, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that was just kind of, kind of draining. I thought by doing it, if I were ever to go and sign up for Ironman again, or even mm-hmm. if I were to get into maybe like, like marathon level, I would certainly, um, go back into that phase, but I'd, I'd from the get go do it really intelligently, you know, taking care of the thyroid, monitoring that, um, right. you know, probably using a little bit more liberally the, the, these new, uh, ketone bodies that you can get in, in supplemental form now and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of going about and doing things a different way. But right now it's not on the radar. So you got to tell me about the sweetbreads cause I had them once and I could not 
there's no way I could make them a regular part of my diet. How did <laughs> well, that work for, for you? <laughs> for for liver, um, that for for liver, that's one of the one things that my wife says that I actually make uh, much better than her, and I I dredge that in egg and then a, a little bit of uh, coconut flour and use uh, sea salt and, and black pepper, and that works really good. Nice. And there's there's two ways that we did sweet breads. One was uh, slow cooking in the crock pot. Um, and we actually did that with, uh, with heart, uh, for Valentine's day a couple of days ago. And so we had a, we had a big old beef heart for Valentine's day and incidentally, that's romantic. I, I, yeah, I destroyed my workout yesterday, really? uh, the day after having that heart. So I don't know if there's something to be said for the, for the mitochondrial density of heart tissue, but that worked out really well. Um, any of, any of these organ meats generally, if you, if you soak them in lemon juice or milk or even like a water vinegar solution, they taste a lot better. Um, and then usually it's, it's coconut flour or almond flour and then frying in, in butter or ghee or olive oil or something like that. Adding some salt and pepper and I think they taste pretty good. First time I had sweet breads was over in, um, in Spain. I competed in the the uh, ITU World Championships over there a couple of years ago, and they served them basically uh, fried and, and skewered, and they were actually really tasty. And most mm-hmm. of the time since then, I've had them fried. So, nice. so you you actually, I I just thought of this. So, have you ever switched from? So right now, essentially, you've gone from kind of endurance type training or endurance type performance, and now you're more moving towards sprint type performance. Have you ever done that before on a carbohydrate-based diet? And the reason I ask is that we, you know, we kind of have this mitochondrial conundrum, you know, for the maximum amount of power production and muscle fiber strength density and muscle fiber size even, uh, you need the highest mitochondrial density you can get. But the type of training to produce those things, say either weightlifting or sprint training actually will decrease mitochondrial density somewhat. Um, Whereas the endurance training done appropriately can increase that mitochondrial density which it sounded like you really focused on so my thought would be that you would make a really quick transition and you would see some very very significant upfront gains in your new training regimens compared to what it would have been previously before this focus on a ketogenic diet and mitochondrial density and I'm, I'm just wondering if qualitatively did you notice that or have you ever gone through that scenario where you could have noticed that yeah well carbs are like drugs for me now like i i i suspect i'm probably getting a really um a really much more intense hyperglycemic response after following that that ketotic diet mm-hmm. um when i do take in carbs but i mean it's literally one of those deals where very very similar to carb depletion um the morning of of getting judged for like a bodybuilding show so that your mm-hmm. your weigh-in is really good um you know and, and then you know protocol after that is you're pretty much off eating like you know pancakes and bread and pasta all day so that you're just you know swole by the end of the day and um kind of feel a little bit similar uh you know at this point i feel like i'm so so sensitive to carbohydrate intake that i not only notice a a huge kind of like bump up in my energy levels and my performance when i say you know eat a a higher carb lunch Mm -hmm. and then do my afternoon workout versus a higher fat lunch but the next day, the muscles actually appear more full, like they pop a little bit more. So, um, 
you know, and that's just totally qualitative, but I certainly seem to be more sensitive to carbohydrate intake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I think, as long as it's in conjunction with physical activity. Um, so that's what I've noticed. So you always do, uh, so you do your training per, predominantly in the evening right now, is that correct? I do most of my training late afternoon okay. or early evening. Um, I'm a slow mover in the morning. I, uh, I do do some yoga and uh, take a good sized dump, and that's about it yeah. in the morning. And <laughs> Which is quite a bit of central it, nervous it's, uh, it's, stimulation there. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit paradoxical because most of the races that that I do in my competitions, you know, they start at like seven a.m. or eight a.m. or whatever. But I just, you know, I, I find that I can kill it in the workouts, and I, you know, part of it is because that's when your body temperature and right. and your agility and, and response time and everything peaks. And most of my training is pretty intense. I mean, the way, the way that I, I train endurance is I'm on my feet all day long. So I have a standing workstation. Um, I'm, I have very, very little amounts of, of any sedentary time in my life. And then I kind of put the icing on the cake with very short, brief, intense sessions at the end of the day. So, and usually for me, you know, it's, it's anywhere from like four to 6 PM in the evening. And you usually have your, you just talked about having your carbohydrate load at lunch. Is that the norm? Usually you like load up on your carbs predominantly at lunch or is that just when you start introducing the carbs during the no, day? No, I, I actually typically have more carbs at dinner. So, um, and, and part of that again is just like logistical. Um, mm. you know, my wife makes, you know, sweet potato fries and quinoa salad and, right. You know, we do a lot of like like beets and carrots and parsnips and, you know, we, we do quite a bit of white rice. And for the most part, usually that's kind of like our everybody sit down dinner together and we have dinner as a family and that's mm-hmm. just what happens to be at the table. So for me, it works out pretty well to have it then. And it's nice, too, because that's that's usually, you know, an hour or so after my workout. So right. um, it's a good time to get it in. Um, we, well, yeah, I don't usually know you... lunch, lunch, oh. lunch for me is just a big bed of vegetables, um, with some, you know, avocados and some, some fish and usually some nuts. And if I'm still hungry before my workout, I'll, I'll throw down a little, a little bit of coconut milk and some, mm-hmm. some protein powder. And that's about it. Yeah. Cause I don't know if you know about my, uh, car backloading program, which, you know, I set up basically a series of arguments based on all kinds of metabolic parameters and circadian rhythms that. You know, really, almost for anything you're doing, if you're going to eat carbohydrates, you should do it at night. Uh, and you, yeah, and you always... I, I actually, oh. I think it was like a year and a half or so ago, I had mm. a question about your program on my on my podcast, so I went and looked into it, and I think our our consensus on my podcast was that um, overall we liked the programs and mm. the philosophy behind it, except for the part about like uh um not being too selective with the quality of the carbohydrates yeah that that uh i've since readjusted that as more and more people and different types of athletes have used it you know really the introduction of that was to like power lifters strongman competitors bodybuilders where you know really they can get away with a lot more junk um so i've been more and more playing with how do you get a really good insulin response with more whole foods and things like that uh, yeah because i really and I think do... that that like power lifters and folks like that i think they can get away with more junk from if you're looking at things from just like a straight up body comp standpoint yeah. but you know i like to take into account like you know gut flora you know right. bacterial health things of that nature so yeah i've actually shifted a lot of focus on that that's why 
Um, CBL2 is a completely different animal where I address a lot of that stuff and make the diet uh, more feasible for more people so that, um, you know, health is not neglected this time for sure. Because, you know, you get a power lifter who's carrying an extra 100 pounds of body fat and you just clean up their diet a little bit, man, they're going to have massive body composition changes and their performance is going to go up, which is what a lot of people saw. And uh, unfortunately, the junk... I, I may have made reference to that out of context too many times, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, the carbohydrate selection really is going to depend so much on the person, uh, their state of health, their type of athletic performance, and even if they are doing any type of athletic performance. Because I know Rocky will, when he brings patients in, that's how he starts to gradually introduce them to ketogenic diets is basically with just getting them to eat their carbohydrates later and later in the day and what's the best yeah. way to do that just for health yeah yeah and do you do you guys do a lot of uh intermittent fasting in your protocol i found that 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 helped me out quite a bit too like basically 12 16 hour fast just about every day uh i don't i'm not a big fan of the i okay let me take that back i don't recommend it i'm, I'm not a big fan of those long of fast well no you said 12 hours is that right yeah i mean generally for me it's dinner and then i you know dinner's done by anything from like 7 to 8 p.m mm-hmm. and then i typically don't eat breakfast until sometime between like 9 and 10 a.m most days yeah so a 12 hour fast is always um kind of my maximum recommendation for fasting time and that includes your sleep time obviously myself sometimes where i found fasting is convenient is just if I get super busy, um, you know, I might sometimes, and, and that's a problem with the ketogenic diet for those who haven't really experienced it too much, you know, it might be five o'clock in the afternoon and I'm just got so busy. I'm like, damn it, I haven't eaten yet today. Um, so in those instances, I find that it's a good steady state, particularly for my amount of body mass. Um, you and I differ. Yeah. I was, I got up to when I was bodybuilding 270 pounds at 9% body fat. And I've whittled yeah. myself back down to 220. Um, mm. So I find, you know, fasting is a good steady state for me, but I really have never been able to increase performance or increase muscle mass or even just feel as good if those fasts go too long too often. Yeah. And, and for, I think, I think for, for mass gain, that intermittent fasting isn't such a great approach. But I also think that, Whenever you're engaging in mass gain, you're always also missing out on some of the cellular longevity effects of caloric restriction. And so, you know, it's it's always kind of having to choose which is more important to you. So, you know, I think that's that's, you know, it's just like, do, do you want to be, you know, swole and maybe live a little less long or, you know, do you want to get sand kicked in your face at the beach, but then outlive all those folks by a few years? So it's. Yeah. It's that paradox we have to live with, I think. See, I always that was one of the kind of things that and this is why I would love to get a lot of a lot more blood data and this is one reason I'm I'm actually out here working with Rocky is to see, you know, what happens with ketone levels um with athletes in these cyclic diets because a lot of those healthy cellular processes that can um you know, activate the SIRT1 gene um, turn on autophagy processes, you know, get the cells cleaned out, healthy, all this great stuff, really tr- triggered by the presence of ketones. 
So the real question is, can we get those significant ketone levels while introducing carbohydrates at the right time and still allowing the accretion of, of muscle mass? And, you know, there's some great um, anecdotal stories out there about car, car backloading and stuff, but we still don't know as far as changes in body composition, but we don't have the blood work to know, you know, what was going on with their ketone levels. Um, are, are we getting the opportunity for some of this benefit? You know, cause like you, my attitude is if you're going to do these kind of athletic events, even if you can't be at the pinnacle of health, you definitely should not be degradating your health to any great extent. Right. Right. In terms of intermittent fasting with my patients, I don't really go down that road. They have enough problems in terms of just choosing food in general to begin with. Um, certainly I do try to get them to think about when they eat their carbohydrates. And I also try to have that. Uh, and, and those patients that are metabolically more broken with, for lack of a better term. So those patients that are insulin resistant, pre-diabetic or diabetic, I, I don't, they're never usually breakfast eaters anyways, typically. So if I can get them to change your lunch, then in a way, I mean, I'm kind of recommending that kind of intermittent fast for them in general, but it's not something that's on the surface that I talked to them about. And um, it is, like you said, it is a way to achieve some calorie restriction, which these patients sorely need sometimes. We, we This actually brings up a, a kind of interesting topic on breakfast, since we're talking about breakfast and there's all these epidemiological studies that people who eat a larger breakfast or healthier or whatever. And I have some counter arguments to that. I just, what's your take on, on let's just say breakfast in general. Um, you know, I've, I've seen some of the, some of the suggestions that like, uh, increased protein load in the morning will do things like restore circadian rhythm or restore, leptin sensitivity um you know or perhaps you know reduce something as simple as you know uh compensatory eating later on in the day something like that um for for me personally i get up in the morning and generally breakfast for me is almost the same thing most mornings of the week um aside from from usually like a saturday or sunday where I'll do like a special, uh, special meal with my kids. Like, you know, we'll do like waffles and pancakes and eggs and bacon or something like that. But, um, generally most days for me, I shove a bunch of kale or spinach in a blender and blend that up with some, uh, some protein powder, some coconut milk, some avocado, toss some Brazil nuts and some almonds in there, do some sea salt, some cinnamon, um, and, uh, usually some, some organic, uh, dark cacao nibs or coconut flakes or something like that. And I pretty much blend it thick cause I like to eat it with a spoon mm-hmm. and that that's my go-to breakfast just about every morning. Yeah. So high fiber, high fat, some protein and yeah, yeah, yeah. generally about, about 20 grams of protein or so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, high fat, high fiber. Yeah, I think most of the studies that argue, you know, you either have to eat a lot of food at breakfast or whatever, and it helps, um, you can work back for backwards from that too. If you have a breakfast high in carbohydrates, um, we can actually see triglyceride levels rise throughout the day if there's no subsequent calorie deprivation. Whereas if you do eat a vast majority of your calories first thing in the morning and you've got some carbs in there, 
then what we can see is the body has the ability to use and lower some of those triglyceride levels lower in the day. So, you know, that's one thing that a lot of, I, th- I think's missed in, you know, I'm sure you understand this and I'm sure you get this when you talk to other people is they throw studies that really are looking at a high carbohydrate paradigm, a, a paradigm that's making people sick and they're throwing that as, you know, oh, well, this is why no matter what type of diet you're on, you need to eat breakfast or you need to eat all your calories as soon as you wake up. And that, you know, it's so hard to help people understand that those are really distinct metabolic paradigms, whether you're eating a lot of carbohydrates or you're eating a lower amount of carbohydrate. Have you, when you work with other athletes or talk to people, have you had that problem helping them to understand that or do you ever really get those arguments or are people already sold when they come to you? You know, for the most part, um, most folks when they come to me, they're already kind of out of couch potato mode. They're, they're active athletes. Um, you know, generally they're, they're staying, you know, relatively sensitive to carbohydrate intake most of the day. And they're on board with the idea of, kind of tweaking the diet to be right around that 50 to 60% fat based intake. And so, um, generally I don't, I don't run into a lot of issues as far as that goes. Oh, well, I'm just going to say lucky you. (laughs) (laughs) Very lucky you. And, 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 you know, most, most people are coming to me for coaching after they've whatever listened to my podcast for a couple of years or, or, you know, they're, they've kind of been tapped into like, you know, paleo primal environment. You know, I, I do occasionally get folks who are kind of hormonally messed up from being like chronic. Generally what I see is, is very, very low calorie intake, you know, high amounts of, um, uh, uh, like, uh, fasting carbohydrate restriction, uh, especially in females combined with excessive amounts mm-hmm. of aerobic exercise. Like that's classic person that comes to me and they're, they're skinny fat or they have low energy levels or they have, um, you know, amenorrhea or other issues that are stemming from simply, um, running too much and not eating enough. And, it's, it's almost kind of annoying when someone hires me to do a one hour consult and five minutes in, I'm like, you're running too much and you're not eating enough. And then the, you know, it's kind of like, okay, so what do we say now? Right. It's like yeah. we're con- consult over. <laughs> well, that was a, uh, like a very lucrative five minutes pretty much. Yeah. And, I mean, and then, you know, the rest of the time you try and figure out other ways to say, don't exercise as much and eat more. Right. Do you have a hard hard time i mean how are they after that one hour consult are they you know amenable to that or do you still sense some resistance there's there's a lot of resistance and it's an incredibly difficult population to get to change habits usually Mm -hmm. uh, 90 percent of the time there is a chain of follow-up emails that happens after a phone call like that asking well can i do um it's eight eight sets of 400 on the concept two rather than doing my 60 minute run. That's okay. Right. Or so I've switched to, to swimming every day. I joined the master swim team and then I'm, I'm going back on swimming in the evenings and, um, swimming is so low impact that that's, that's going to be just fine. And, and, you know, I, I, I can get away with that. Right. And then, so instead of doing a intermittent daily 16 hour fast, and you know I'm, I'm doing you know whatever a weekly 24 hour that's cool right, right. and you know <laughs> they just find all these ways to skirt the issue and yeah i mean it's a, it's a very very difficult um 
difficult habit to change. I mean, even even for me, when I went from you know higher carbohydrate intake and traditional um, higher volume endurance training to low volume endurance training and less carbohydrate intake, I mean, there's there's a definite mental question when you're towing the starting line of an Ironman triathlon, having never gone the distance in your training and having shoved your training volume to a third of what most of the people towing the starting line are at, mm-hmm. but how you're going to do and whether or not the body is actually capable of pulling off that, that amount of endurance. And, you know, it, it really is the case that, that humans seem to be able to go for very long periods of time. Um, if you're strong enough and if you, if you're able to resist central fatigue, which a lot of times, you know, speed and strength and power training is going to, to bestow just as much as like the, the long, slow endurance training. There's kind of like two different ways to skin the cat. Right. It's kind of interesting. You make a, a good point that, you know, our, it really could be that we see such high carbohydrate loads in the, in the diets of athletes because we keep scaling up the training that we do and the training intensity and the training volume and the amount of time we're training where really the only way to compensate for that much training is with you know increased carbohydrate load where if we had the appropriate amount of training which you know could be much lower volumes much less time spent training for events then we can revert back to a more healthy diet that can sustain those kind of training loads and then you know game day you you've got all the performance you need to excel Yep, exactly. It's it's about getting out of the train to eat, eat to train cycle, mm-hmm. going into every training session with a specific goal in mind, and that goal should not be the number of calories that you're burning or the amount of time that you're exercising, and um, then finishing up fueling based on the actual exercise session that you've done and not getting caught up in that you know that cycle that so many folks, especially you know, folks who, who are bored and don't have enough to do in America, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a lot. It's like, what do I do? Oh, I'm going to run. Well, I'm back from my run. What do I do? I'm going to eat. Oh, I ate too much. What do I do? I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to, you know, exercise again. It's just this never ending cycle. And yeah, it does, it does mess people up. I mean, like, you know, sometimes you, you, you feel like you're that person who might be vilified for telling folks that, they're engaging in too much physical activity when we have such a problem with, with sedentary and, and obesity in our population. But the fact is like, there's a lot of folks and especially it's those folks who are listening to podcasts like this, who are more tapped into health and exercise mm-hmm. who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, people listening in, you, I mean, you, you really do need to question, you know, why you are doing a specific exercise session or, or why you're, you know, eating a specific meal. I think that's important. We always say, you know, at least in my practice, you can never out train a bad diet, whether you're eating too many or too little calories. So that's one of the things we always talk to our patients about. Yep. Yeah. So catches up eventually. Yeah. We are, you know, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Ben. It's been a really enjoyable conversation. I had no idea where this was going to go when we started, but I think we ended up with some great topics and is there anything else you would like to give some shameless plug for before we get off? <laughs> no, I think uh, yeah, go, go check out my book at, at beyondtrainingbook.com. And uh, then, uh, John, I, I, would, I would love to hear more 
or see the results of what you guys are digging into, especially with regards to ketosis and longevity. I think that's really cool. So um, I don't know if you're going to post that to a blog or or somewhere else, but I'd, I'd be super interested to see what flushes out with that. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll definitely get, the, get that to you. And your main website is just bengreenfield.com, is that correct? Uh, it's bengreenfieldfitness.com. Fitness. At one time, okay. someone had purchased bengreenfield.com and put something really nasty up there. So I don't know that <laughs> folks will even want to visit that website. But okay. bengreenfieldfitness.com will, will still fly. Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot for being on, and um, we'll talk to you again sometime, I'm sure. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.